Galatians 5, 16 through 25, and when you have it, please stand. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. That these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murderers, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in the time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. God's word for God's people and God's people said amen. amen. I used to enjoy greatly eating food at my grandma Bruce's house. Didn't particularly enjoy it at Grandma Hargraves. They were both excellent cooks, mind you by all means, but when I ate at Grandma Hargrave's house, if we were having, say, fried chicken, macaroni, and spinach in a glass of milk, she fed it to us in a specific way. Uh, you got a plate of spinach first. <laughs> then after you finished that plate of spinach, you got to have the macaroni and cheese and fried chicken. And then after you finished all of that, you got to get the milk that was sitting in the refrigerator the whole time. She gave it to you in a certain way. The, the, so the process of enjoying the food to me was disturbed because that food sat in the refrigerator and I had to go get it piece by piece and see it. That process to me disturbed me. But when I was at Grandma Bruce's house, I liked lunch and dinner when grandma cooked it. I liked breakfast when grandpa cooked it. I didn't know you could make biscuits as good as my grandfather did and because he took the patience and the time and, and there were certain things he made and he didn't just follow the instructions when he made them. He would taste them to make sure they're right. So it wasn't always the exact same thing. There was a process, amen, in how he made his food, and it showed itself in breakfast. But that same process showed itself in food when my grandmother made lunch and dinner. I enjoyed the fruits and vegetables that my grandmother made. Why? Because if I wanted to know where they went or where they came from, I could go look out the kitchen window, and I could see in her garden the squash and cucumbers, and all of the food right there. I saw it get planted in the ground. I saw it grow up. I saw it come off of the plant. 
come into the kitchen, get washed, and then go onto the stove, bless God. I enjoyed it. When you see what something has and where you see where it comes from and you see the work that goes into making it, you appreciate it that much more. You appreciate the process. And I got to thinking about that as I was preparing this message because it's talking about the fruit of the spirit. And so I got to thinking about the vegetables and the fruits. I got to thinking about the raspberries that were growing in the bush in the backyard and I could just go in the backyard and pick them off, wash them and eat them. I'm in the pulpit, I ain't going to lie. Sometimes I ain't washed them off and eat them. I just ate them right there. It's, it's readily available fruit. Why can't I have it? It's right there. It's at hand. It's at my hand's reach. And so I would have that. But I got to thinking about what the difference is between vegetables and fruit. And there's a whole bunch of arguments that different chefs have made about it. But I went to, in terms of the plant, what is the difference? And one thing that I've learned about vegetables is that the vegetable, in many cases, the stem and the leaves and all of that can be eaten on a vegetable. You can eat almost an entire piece of lettuce. You can eat all of the carrot, the things that are the stems and the roots and all of that. You can consume all of that. But fruit, on the other hand, is considered technically the seed-bearing ovaries of the plant. So when you have that watermelon that comes out, the watermelon still has seeds in it. When you eat that strawberry, the strawberry still has seeds in it. Most of the fruit is the seed-bearing uh, ovary of the plant. It's designed to make more of itself. And because it's designed to make more of itself, I find it more than coincidental that when you go to an HEB or a Kroger and you are looking for the fruit and vegetable section, it's called the produce section. All right, preacher. The fruit is designed to produce more of itself. You plant watermelon, it's designed to produce more watermelon. You plant pears, it's designed to produce more pears. You plant oranges, they're designed. Apples, they're designed to produce more of themselves. You can take a branch of oranges off of an orange tree and take it to your own house, plant it, and get oranges. Amen? We, we have some people who have, have uh, no names mentioned have come to mom's house and taken oranges off of the orange tree and have grown more trees off of it because the fruit is doing what it is designed to do. Produce more of itself. Uh, Paul talks about this fruit, but not fruit that you eat. He's talking about fruit of the spirit in the text. Still in Galatians, as we've been following for the last couple of weeks, still trying to get the church straight because there are people there that feel like your Christianity is not good enough. There are other things you have to do in order to do that. You don't, need, you don't just take Jesus at what it's worth. We want extra stuff out of you in order to be a Christian. And so he goes to talk about this fruit of the Spirit. And he's first, before he gets on the fruit of the Spirit, the people are still in bondage. They're still in bondage about their perception of the law. So he says in verse 1, stand fast in chapter 5, stand fast therefore in the liberty which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. We are not 
caught up in our present situation so much that we cannot get out. Hmm. All right. Uh, psychologists might tell us that we are the products of our parents' emotional health and the way that our parents raise us and the things that they say may limit what we can do. And economists might say that we are products of class, meaning what neighborhood we were born into, how much money we have access to, how much money our parents made, how much money our, our grandparents made, may all in all determine what we are doing. And a sociologist may say that we are products of our neighborhood, our ethnicity, meaning that if you're African-American, African-Americans are only by and large able to do certain things, and so you're not expected to get a certain amount of education. You're not expected to do certain things because we have grouped an entire class mm. together. We are limited by our own traditions and our norms. That's what they would say, that, but that is bondage. Mm. Paul came to tell the people that they are free. We are free in Christ Jesus. We are no longer bound by the opinions of others. Or the circumstances that we might be in, we do not have to be held hostage by peer pressure. Something that I've learned about being bound by the opinions of others is nine times out of ten, they, that person may have said something, but they are no longer thinking about it. They may have hurt your feelings to the core, but they are no longer thinking about it. And you're replaying that over and over again, what they did to you and what they hurt you. And what somebody else thinks of you is really none of your business. Now, I used to take that phrase to mean when what others think of you is none of your business means you're not entitled to know. But when something's your business, that's what you focus on. That's what you're getting better by. That's what you spend your time, your talent, and your treasure on. So it's okay for them to think it. It's okay for them, for me to even know it, but it's no longer my business means I'm not going to focus on it. All right. All right. So we cannot be bound by the opinions of others, and we cannot be bound by people trying to hold us hostage under the law. We are free. But with that freedom comes opportunity. Well, in the text, when they talk about it, he says in verse 13, for you, brethren, have, only been, have been called to liberty, only not only to use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love to serve one another. The use of the word opportunity literally means a staging area. It was a place in those times where they used to have a base of operations for a military campaign. A staging area, a planning, a place where we get everything together before we're going to do what we got to do. We kind of have, we kind of done that when it comes to sin. We know what time whomever is coming home or whether or not they're coming home at all. We know when we need to be somewhere and where to get whatever it is we have to get done. And we're able to do that because we have that opportunity. We have that freedom. I once uh, read an article that said that uh, people who work like the most flexible jobs are usually susceptible to the most vices. Why? Because you have that free time. There's nowhere you need to be at any, at any given time. And because you've got the free time and not much structure in it, you have time to do all the things you're not supposed to be doing. They say that that's where the adage comes from, that an idle mind is the workshop for the devil. There's this opportunity there. I ain't doing nothing. I might as well go do this. 
I ain't doing nothing. I might as well go over here. And so we're not to use the freedom that we have to be no longer bound by the law to do things. See, see the, the, the freedom that Paul is talking about when he talks about this freedom and this opportunity is not about getting away from slavery. It, 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 it's but rather about who we choose to serve. So it's freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. Hmm. All right. Ah, so he talks about in the text uh, for the laws fulfilled in one word, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, but back in the 13th, it says, uh, after the opportunity of the flesh, but through love, serve one another. I used to have a problem with a lot of the term analogy in the Bible when it talked about slavery. But I didn't understand in the, in, until I researched further that most of the time when they were talking about slavery, they weren't talking about the kind of slavery that we as a people have endured. They weren't talking about selling people from their mothers and fathers and beating them and all of these things. They were talking about servitude to serve one another. So when they were saying that they were to be slaves to Christ, that meant that they were supposed to serve Christ. So to become slaves to one another in the text is, is to serve one another. We are to love. We are to love. And we are to love them enough to be willing to serve them. And by them, I mean the other people in Christ, our brothers and sisters in the church, our family. Uh, the text says in Leviticus 19 and 18 that you are not to take any vengeance nor bear grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. I am the Lord. Paul says it again in his letter to the Romans, to owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. He goes on to list the commandments in, 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 in nine, but then he says, he says, for the, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, they are all summed up in one thing, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of a law. And if Paul is not good enough for you, and if Leviticus is not good enough for you, then we can go to Matthew. But then the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, that he is Jesus. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? He said, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the greatest commandment. And there is a second like it, meaning it has just as much weight as the first one. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. When we sum up the law, it's to love. Christ did not come to abolish the law. Christ came to fulfill the law. And so when you take all of the laws that is pined and, and combined them together, it is about love. See, I can't tell somebody what to do if I don't love them. Well, technically I can tell them what to do if I don't love them, but they won't receive it if I don't love them. The adage says that the people do not care how much you know until you know how much they, until they know rather how much you care. 
So I can go and say all of these things. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. But if there's no love with it, it won't be received. It'll fall on deaf ears. And that's what they're trying to say in the text when they talk about all of the law. It's good to keep the law, but where's the love? Love covers a multitude of sins. If we're going to be covered, if we're going to talk about the law and we're going to beat on people for, fi- for not following the law, we need to do love and not just saying something in love. I'm telling you this in love, but I don't like what you're doing. You actually have to love someone. Uh, 15, verse 15 says, if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. So if you want to practice tearing people down in the text or in, the li- in life in general, eventually you'll become pretty good at it. If we spend all of the time hating on one another and telling bad things about each other and verbally telling people, and verbally, telling, verbally abusing people and telling them off, we'll be pretty good at it. And then you'll have two beat up people fighting until we both fall out. Instead of fighting each other, we need to be fighting our own flesh. Instead of fighting each other, we need to be fighting our own flesh. Instead of worrying about what's going on across the street, how about we sweep around our own porch? There is an adage that hurts my heart when I hear it, but it's so true. It says that Christianity is the only army that shoots its own wounded. Holiness is about making your own heart better, not coming up with a club to kick people out. I know it feels good to have something that somebody else doesn't have. I know it feels good to get an exclusive of something, but Jesus is not meant to be exclusive. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, not who is third generation in this church, not whose mama sold the pews together, not who's, who poured the parking lot, not who pounded every nail into the wood, not who hung the doors on the shingles, not who painted the windows. Whosoever shall believe in him shall be saved. Whosoever. There's no qualification on it. There's no adjective to add to it to reduce the number. God wants everybody to be saved. It's up to us to accept it. And it's also up to us not to try to block other people from getting it. We cannot shoot our own wounded. We have to show love to our neighbor. Instead of fighting one another, spend more time fighting your own flesh. And the way to do that is to get help from the Spirit. The Holy Spirit itself is, is a is dwelling in a believer is a sign that the believer is a part of God's people and an heir to the covenant promises of Abraham. It's also a sign that the final day God will declare the believer righteous. So we ought to be able to walk in the spirit. 
We ought to be able to ask to be in relationship with the Spirit. God has given it to us. We just need to accept it. The Spirit of God being poured out on the earth is how it's being restored to its fruitfulness. And these are items, like I said when I talked about fruit in the beginning, it's not items that you need to keep for yourself. The Spirit of God is not just something that makes us shout and dance and speak in tongues and run all over the building and lay hands over each other. It's more than that. The Spirit is bringing back the fruitfulness. The fruit is supposed to be reproduced in others. These behaviors build or destroy communities. These behaviors build or destroy relationships. These behaviors build and or destroy ourselves. The plants that grow are the ones that we water and feed. Are we watering and feeding gossip? Or are we watering and feeding speaking in love? Are we watering and feeding lying? Or are we watering and feeding truth? Are we watering and feeding adultery? Or are we watering and feeding faithfulness? The plant grows when you water and feed it. Because when you water and feed it, you give it an opportunity to grow. You don't make it grow yourself. You make a room for it to grow. And it begins with love, the fruit of the Spirit, and ends with self-control. How much better would we be if we could just practice those two things? If we could practice loving one another. If we could practice providing self-control. I know it's hard. You want to give people a piece of your mind. You don't want to feel like it's you being run over if you let them say or do something or don't address certain things. But sometimes it's that much better not to address it. Mark Twain said not to argue with fools because if you argue with fools, they'll drag you down to their level and beat you with experience. (laughs) You in their area when you try to come down to their level. You in their house. And the most experienced one is most of the time going to win. All right, all right. So we exercise the love and the self-control. Ah. And love is what is all that is done. That's, that's all the law combined. And then we get on to the fruit of the spirit. We talk about joy. Initially, when you look at joy and happiness, they look like the same thing. Surface level definitions both use the term happiness to define both joy and happy. I really don't like when you look up a definition of a word and they use the word in the word for the definition because that doesn't really help me with the definition. But happiness and happy was the state of being happy and joy originally was a happy emotion in some of the definitions. But when I started looking deeper into the definitions and looking deeper into the word. When you look past the surface, there are two different things. Joy is a state of emotional well-being. Happiness is something that is favored by luck and fortune. Mm. One is an internal feeling, 
and one is dependent upon an external situation. When you have joy, you are in a, 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 a good emotional state, but it doesn't say anything about what's going on. When you have joy, you are content in any kind of situation, whether there's lack or abundance. When you have joy, you don't depend upon somebody. That's why they say in the song, this joy I have, the world didn't give it and the world can't take it away because the joy comes from the Lord. You have this emotional state. Happiness, you can be happy or unhappy depending on how much of your paycheck you got left in the bank. Mm, <laughs> you can be happy or unhappy based on whether or not somebody else talks to you or not. You can be happy or unhappy whether or not you are, you are arguing with your husband or wife or your boyfriend or girlfriend. You can be happy or unhappy, but joy is eternal. It's internal, not external. And then that peace is a state of tranquility. Peace doesn't mean an absence of fighting all the time. Peace is a state that you're in. Freedom from disturbance. Freedom from disturbance. Somebody can attempt to disturb you, but how you respond to it is what matters. I heard someone once say that life is 10% of what happens and 90% of how you react to it. Mm -hmm. People can attempt to disturb you, but if you allow, it depends on whether or not you allow them to disturb you or not. Yeah. Long-suffering is patience. Mm -hmm. Goodness is the quality of state or being good, deserving trust. Mm -hmm. Gentleness is mildness or manners of disposition, and self-control is restraint, restraint rather, exercise over one's own impulses. All right. And I'm not saying it like I got it all together. I got a long way to go too. All right. But I'm learning and I'm understanding that mm -hmm. it's not about what somebody outside does to me, it's about how I react to it. The only thing I can control is my own actions. And if I spend that time operating in a state and understanding that my emotional state is not dependent upon anybody else, but dependent upon me, the better off I am. And the more energy I have at the end of the day. Going back and forth with people about things is draining. They say to stay away from people who, who like that kind of stuff. And it's interesting when I look at all the works of the flesh, the, the adultery, the, 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 um, the adultery, the fornication, the uncleanliness, the lewdness, the idolatry. All of those things involve interacting with somebody else. All of those things involve how you treat somebody else. But the fruit of the spirit, the fruit of the things that we try to learn involve how we treat ourselves. The works of the flesh are external actions, but the fruit of the spirit is internal control. And we use that to keep in step with the spirit. And you know, the funny thing about fruit that I've been learning in looking up this message is that you can control some fruit. You can mold it and grow it how you see fit. You just have to put it in the right opportunity. You don't directly control it, but if you put the right things around it, if you surround it with the right stuff, it grows. 
into the mold that you want. They have watermelon that grows square. Hmm. And this is square without cutting it. They have pears that they have shaped to look like Buddha. They have cucumbers that they make heart-shaped. They do all kind of things with different fruits and vegetables because they grow it and they mold it. What they do is they plant it and then they put a mold around the area that the seed is going to grow. And so when the watermelon breaks up into the ground, into a square, it grows up into this square. And it stays squared shaped because it grows into the mold. Mm. They determined the shape of the fruit that it's going to be in. How are we molding our own actions? What are we surrounding ourselves with? What area are we allowing ourselves to grow into? I've heard many a motivational speakers say that if you show me your five closest friends, I'll show you how far you get in life. Hmm. Now that's not saying that we don't interact with everybody and we don't show love, but who are we allowing to be our mold? And so the fruit grows, and the farmers who grow these fruits, they, they water the fruit, they prune the trees, they remove the weeds, and it takes time and effort to produce great fruit. Sometimes you got to lose some things. I remember being at my mother's house and watching the gardener prune the orange tree. And that first year that he pruned it, he cut a bunch of branches off and a bunch of leaves off and everything, and the tree looked like it had been cut in half. But that very next year, when it's time for the oranges to come, it had more oranges on that tree than I'd ever seen, and they were all softball-sized and big because they had cut away the unnecessary stuff. And when you cut away the unnecessary stuff, it allowed the fruit that remained to grow. The fruit had room to stretch out. The fruit had room to get access to sunlight. The fruit had room to get more access to the nutrients because it wasn't competing with it with other plants. So sometimes in order for something to grow, you're going to have to cut away some things. Sometimes for something to grow, you're going to have to eat something new that you haven't eaten before. We have our own fruit to develop, though. Instead of pruning and watering and removing the weeds, our spiritual fruit needs prayer. Our spiritual fruit needs praise and worship. Our spiritual fruit needs to devour this scripture. There is no shortcut to getting better. None at all. But you have to make the conditions right. And given an opportunity and a time to grow. There was a movie I watched called Evan Almighty. It had uh, Morgan Freeman in it and Steve Carell and a couple other people. And it was a movie where Steve Carell's character, uh, Evan, God told him to build a boat and put animals in this boat. Sound familiar? <laughs> and in this movie, God told him to do this. And so he began to build the boat, and he was in having friction with his wife. Evan was having friction with his wife named Joan. And Joan took the kids and went out to eat for a little bit to get away from Evan because this was crazy. He was growing a beard and and, and starting to walk around with a staff and building this boat even though he was not in that profession. 
And so Joan goes to a restaurant with her kids and runs into Morgan Freeman, who's playing God. She doesn't know that Morgan Freeman is playing God because he's disguised as a waiter. And she talks about one thing that she keeps praying for is an opportunity to get closer to her family. That's all she prays for, and she doesn't think God is answering her prayer because the family has not gotten closer. Matter of fact, it's gotten further apart. And so God, in the form of Morgan Freeman disguised as a waiter, says if somebody prays for patience... Do you think God gives them patience or do you think God gives them the opportunity to be patient? If somebody asks for their family to be closer, do you think God just zaps the family and gives them warm and fuzzy feelings and and, and they're going to be closer together? Or does he give them opportunities to love each other? I believe some of the problem is with this way of, that we call Christianity is people have sold God as a vending machine. Mm-hmm. Stick your money in, press a few buttons, and it falls out. Or it's a wind-up toy where you just wind it up enough, you dance and, 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 and shout and scream hallelujah loud enough, and all of a sudden you are showered with blessings and money. That is not what this is about. Sometimes if you want to get better, it's going to require some exercise. If I want to be faster, I'm going to have to run some. If I want to be stronger, I'm going to have to lift some. If I want more power in God, I'm going to have to pray some. We give these opportunities and growing the fruit is not a drop of seed in the ground and tomorrow you've got a bushel of fruit. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes effort. It takes work. It takes mistakes. And learning from them mistakes. Einstein, I mean not Einstein, uh, Edison. Thomas Edison has over 10,000 failed in patents. Mm. 10,000 failed inventions, rather. 10,000. I don't know, but I think after about 1,000... Maybe even less than that, some people would have decided, maybe I'm not good at this inventing thing. (laughs) Maybe this is not what needs to happen. This is not the right career. But it takes time to develop and move on. And not only that, I I saw a story yesterday about Thomas Edison that not only does he have these failed inventions, but at one point, he had a barn where he had all of his inventions at. And the barn caught on fire and everything he had in there burned down. Before, this was before he became as famous as he was for the, some of the things that he did. Everything that he had burned to the ground and he was at home sleeping and his, uh, uh, one of the people that worked with him ran in and told him it's on fire and him and his son went out and they saw it and they looked at it and because he had all different kind of chemicals and electrical components and everything, it was red and blue and green kind of fires going on. And they asked, what do you want us to do, uh, Thomas Edison? And he said, go wake up my wife and child so that they can come look at this fire because we'll probably never see anything as great as this again. <laughs> Time and patience and effort and work. And he took from that everything burning down to the ground kept inventing, kept trying. And so that's what we have to do if we want to be successful at anything. 
We can't just try one time and think that it's not, that it's not for us. We're going to have to keep praying. We're going to have to keep reading scripture. We're going to have to keep fasting. We're going to have to keep coming to church. We're going to have to keep loving the Lord. It's not designed to be, if it was designed to be that way, you would not appreciate it anymore. We can't give up on it because if we were give up on it, it'd be failed. What if God gave up on us the way we give up on stuff? And so this battle of the spirit versus the flesh is ongoing. And little by little, you have to get better. And little by little, you have to plant the seed. And little by little, you have to grow it. And little by little, you have to water it. And little by little, when the seed and the fruit comes, you got to use that fruit to make more fruit. So that we can get the redemptive power of God. Why? Because all of those things, it says in the text, were crucified with Christ. God sent his son, one who knew no sin, to become sin for us. He sent his son so that we could be crucified with him. He, he sent his son to Calvary so we wouldn't have to worry about fornication and adultery, that we could be in love and joy and peace. He died on the cross so that we could have our own self-control, that we could be wrapped in the spirit. And he was faithful. He could have called 10,000 angels down. But instead, he said, God, for, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Mm-hmm. He worked at it. And not only that, he continued to work at it. And when he died, that wasn't where the story ended. He rose with all power in his hand, so that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus did all that for us so that we can have some joy, so that we can have some peace, so that we can have some gentleness, so we can have some patience, so we can have some self-control. He did it all for us. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, the doors of the church are open, and we invite you to come.